if you've got a Bible, it'd be great to have it in your hands. If you haven't got one, you've got a chance just to scoot out and grab one. Um, we've got quite a long passage today. Um, you might ask why you're doing a long passage. It's three chapters. It just fits well together. And because we're looking at narrative, it's a bit disjointed if we keep breaking it up. So um, I've chosen quite an ambitious chunk to look at tonight. Uh, but rather than preach on all three chapters, which would mean that we would uh, miss our tea and not get to bed before the moon goes down, um, I'm going to focus particularly on uh, two little bits of the story. But we are going to read it all together. Uh, it is a long passage, but it's really good uh, on occasions to read scripture, uh, even lots of it. So um, Val's very kindly going to read from chapter 9, verse 1, through to chapter 11, verse 15. It is long, and I'm just going to interject at different points, uh, just to make some comments to help us understand where we are in the story. Um, but before I do that, let me just give us a little summary from last week. This was the little picture we put up, just to remind us where the book of 1 Samuel fits in the whole of God's word. Uh, Joshua, the great story of entry into the promised land, judges the the story that follows after, probably the saddest book in the Bible. And and we looked at these kind of repeated cycles of rebellion as God's people took their eyes off him. And then Judges leads into the book of 1 Samuel, which we're looking at together now, and the search for God's king. But we get that little book in the middle between Judges and 1 Samuel called Ruth. A surprising little book and this wonderful story of a man, Boaz, who marries a foreign woman, Ruth, and together they come together. And it's from them, their offspring, that comes King David, who we're going to see in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel is very significant in God's plans. So that's the little story of where we are in the whole Bible. And uh, this was a sort of summary slide of everything we looked at last week. Uh, The great problem in in chapter 8 and 9 of, of 1 Samuel is godless leaders. And we thought about the great substitution, didn't we? How we all in our lives substitute God, who is Lord, for other things. Uh, so often good things. And then we looked at the solution where God provides for us his king. And the contrast, if you remember last week, was between the king who God said would come to rule Israel, who would just take, 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 in contrast to the great king, Jesus Christ, who comes and gives, gives, gives. And that very last line of last week's sermon was thinking about the fact that there is a king worth having. And the very last line was, and we're going to go in search of him in 1 Samuel. So we're going to carry on that search um, this evening. Just have a look, though, at the end of chapter 8. You might have noticed there was a little phrase where God had said to Samuel, listen to them and give them a king. And then the, the writer just gives this little phrase, everyone is to go back to his own town. Uh, it's not just a throwaway line. What the writer is doing is saying... I want to leave you wondering what's going to happen next. They've all just gone home. And we're going to see in chapter 9 onwards what did happen next. So Val's very kindly going to read. Uh, I'll just interject at different points. And uh, let's enjoy reading through chapters 9 to 11 before I just draw out four short things from that passage. Thank you, Val. There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost, and Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. 
Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zaph, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. It's all a bit random, isn't it? We've, we've been doing all this stuff about God's king, and suddenly we've got this random kind of farmyard disaster where donkeys have gone missing. And you're thinking, what's going on? Um, this is one of the things you see in God's word all the time. Something that just seems like a surprise, that's random, is all part of God's plan. And we're going to see why the donkeys are very significant shortly. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He's highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he'll tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We've no gift to take to the man of God. What what do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked them, Is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He has just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming towards them on his way up to the high place. So so there's our little answer to the random donkeys. God had used something completely random to bring Saul across the path of Samuel. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people for their cry has reached me. So do you remember back to chapter 8 where Israel had asked for a king and God was angry not just with the request for a king, which he has predicted would happen. The thing he was angry about was, do you remember, the request for a king like the nations, the very thing that God had said you mustn't do in the book of Deuteronomy. But despite the rebellion of God's people, we still see the hand of a very gracious God here who gives them a king. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me. And in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. 
And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjaminite from from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about thirty in number. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, Here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said, I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I'll send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzar on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. And you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hands find to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. Bit of a longer section, but do you notice all the little details you get in that? The names of places, the names of people, who they'd meet, where they'd meet them, what they'd be carrying. Loads and loads of details. And what it shows us is that God's hand is very much in the story, in every little detail. Uh, I guess it encourages us in our lives that God is involved in all the little details of our life. Um, So let's carry on with the story in verse 10. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, 
A procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, He assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mitzpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had made all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan. A matris clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. So just here, I want you to make a little kind of uh, note to self. God is about to choose his king, but very quickly the king gets rejected. Just try and begin to join up the dots and see where this could be going. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. Uh, so the Ammonites were one of the, um, the foreign powers in the land. They were one of the enemies of God's people, and they were seeking to crush God's people, to kick them out of the land. And so here you see God's people rather pathetically kind of offering to give themselves over to this foreign power. And if we're not rescued, then uh, we'll make a treaty with you. It's another really good example of God's people turning their back on him. 
But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you, only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Uh, the reason that would bring great disgrace is um, at that particular time in history when people went to battle, they had a shield that covered their left eye. So it covered their body and their left eye and their right eye could see the enemy. So if you were a fighting opposing enemy and you managed to gouge out the right eye of the opposing forces, they were left completely helpless. They wouldn't be able to fight. So this sort of expression is their way of saying we want to bring total disgrace on God's people. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, They were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today. For this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Val. We won't do that every week, but it's it's sometimes helpful. Uh, It's a great story, isn't it? But I guess the really important question is, um, what does it all mean? Why is it in the Bible? Uh, And what in the world has it got to say to us today? I just want to remind you of uh, this little verse, which I drew our attention to last week. A verse that comes right at the beginning of the Bible, chapter 3 of Genesis, where God is cursing Adam and Eve and Satan for the mistake they had made. And you remember he says here, God said in punishment, I will put enmity, so conflict between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
And I made the point last week that this is describing a conflict that's going to go on throughout history between the offspring of Adam and Eve and the offspring of Satan. And all the way through the Bible, you see this conflict played out in little small ways. But it's all pointing forward to the great conflict where God's great king would crush Satan under his head. So we're just going to look at four things, each quite short, which we learn from uh, that story so far, which will help tee up next week where we're looking at a much shorter passage in chapter 12. The first thing is, notice how in this story we see again and again the unbelief of God's people. The exact thing that we saw last week in chapter 8. And that unbelief continues. I want to ask you, um, how quick do you feel you are to doubt God? Doubt's a problem that we all will struggle with. Uh, no doubt, some more than others, but we all have doubts. Um, I enjoy reading um, much of the writing of Tim Keller. I think Neil quoted him this morning, but he's sp- spoken quite a lot about faith. And he makes the point in one of his books that sometimes people come to him as a Christian and says, say, um, I wish I had your faith. And he makes the point that it's a really it's an odd question because he doesn't believe that it's Christians or people of religion who have faith. He makes the point every human being has faith. Uh, the bigger question is what or who do you place your faith in? So you think about the doubts that we all perhaps legitimately have in our life. When we choose to doubt, and perhaps that's what feels right and natural in the moment, we are human. But when we choose to doubt, we are exercising faith in something. Because there would be an alternative not to doubt. So he makes the point, we all have faith. The point is, in whom do you place your faith? You think about worry. There are many legitimate worries in the world. But often when I choose to worry, one of the things I'm doing is actually I'm placing my faith in myself. Because as I worry about the situation ahead of me, I'm thinking, Mark, what can I do about the situation? How can I fix it? How will I cope with what's ahead of me? And actually, in that very moment when I'm choosing to worry, even if it feels the most natural thing to me, I'm kind of making a choice over and above trusting God that is so often very much harder. I had a really honest conversation with someone in the church this week who said to me, um, I really want to experience God in my life. And it's a great question. And they said, I think I really need to have an experience of God. And as we got talking, I was trying to help this person see that it's right that we all experience God. We're in a living relationship with him if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You should experience God. It's not necessarily right to go in search of an experience. As we got talking, I was trying to help this person see that the more that they can learn to trust the words of God and to put into practice the things that he has said, the more they will experience God in their life when God's word proves to be true. A little illustration. You're probably wondering what these random objects up here are. Um, there's no nothing um, complex in this illustration. What is this? Watering can. There we go. We've done quite well. What's that? Salt grinder. And what's this? Screwdriver. Now, what does a watering can do? Waters plants. Right, this is really easy. Don't, don't get worried. Okay. A watering can waters plants. What does a salt grinder do? Seasons food, flavors my food. What does a screwdriver do? Turns screws. So if I want to water plants, there's no point having a watering can. I have to use it. I fill it with water, I tip it on the plants, and the plants grow. 
if I want flavoured food, it's no good having a salt grinder in my kitchen. I take the salt grinder and I grind it. Salt falls on my food. It tastes better. If I want to turn a screw, there's no point having a screwdriver. I pick the screwdriver up, I use it, and I turn it, and it turns the screw. So you get the kind of illustration, okay? Now, what's this? It's my Bible, the Word of God. What does it do? It shapes and molds my character and helps me to live my life to the honour and glory of God. But just in the same way that each of these things do something, they don't do something unless we use them. If I don't tip up the watering can, it doesn't water any plants. If I don't turn the salt grinder, it won't flavour my food. If I don't use the screwdriver, the screw will never go into the wall. And it's kind of the same with God's word. We know that it's true, we know it's his word, but until we use it, we won't experience God at work. And so I was trying to help this person, and I was speaking to myself just as much as them, that when we have doubts, we need to trust in the word of God, because God's word is always trustworthy. And the more that we put into practice his word, and we, it, he proves himself to be trustworthy, the more that we will experience God at work in our life. It's not so much I need to go in search of an experience, though for some people God does work in an extraordinary way in an isolated experience, but more I need to be experiencing God all the time because I'm in a living relationship with him where he's speaking to me. Well, we see unbelief of God's people all the time and actually whenever you see unbelief in the Bible, it's not meant to be there so we point the finger and go, look at those Israelites, always unbelieving. They're there more that we hold up a mirror and go, ah, look at me. I'm always unbelieving. I'm just like them. But notice too in the story that that unbelief is met with the most incredible grace. Do you know back in chapter 8 verse 7, do you remember when last week uh, Samuel is very frustrated that God's people have effectively rejected him in his old age as ruler over God's people? And God says very clearly in chapter 8 verse 7, listen Samuel, it's not you they've rejected, it's me they have rejected as their king. And that little word me there is emphatic, it comes with real power and real force. Yet despite what we saw last week, this repeated pattern of rebellion, and what we've seen through 9, 10 and 11 today, God still remains incredibly gracious. Do you see in chapter 9 verse 16, where God says to Samuel, I have looked on my people, their cry has reached me. I think if someone pushed me and said, um, why are you a Christian? The thing I would almost always appeal to is the faithfulness of God. Even in my relatively young age, I've experienced incredible faithfulness of God. And I know many of all, all of us will have in different ways. And the thing I love about God is that when I'm faithless and I'm faithless all the time, he's always faithful. When I doubt God and I doubt him all the time, his word always proves to be true. When I fail to trust him, when I make foolish decisions, he is always at work to use those foolish decisions to grow me and for his glory. When I substitute God for the love of another, God is always merciful and allows me to come back to him. He never abandons me. I think sometimes we may be tempted to have a view of God that he is sitting up there on the cloud somewhere with a really big stick. And every time we muck up, just like the Israelites does, he whacks us. You're not good enough. 
you keep doubting. I've forgiven you for this a hundred times already. But that's not God at all. The incredible thing about the living God is he is incredibly gracious. And every time we, like the Israelites, are unbelieving, he meets us time and time and time again with his love and with his grace. The third thing you see in our passages from this evening is that God shows his grace by preparing a king for his people. Now, there's all sorts of things that we could draw attention to in this passage. It's completely packed, but we're just going to draw out a couple of them. Notice how God's king, Saul, comes from humble roots. Did you see there in chapter 9, verse 21? Saul is from the tiny tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the smallest of the 12 tribes that made up the people of Israel, God's people. If you read back in Judges chapter 21 and 22, Benjamin were nearly wiped out by the foreign superpowers in the land. But we thought about it last week, didn't we? God doesn't choose his king on the basis of prestige and status. Do you remember the little book, Legacy, that I held up? A book that had followed the New Zealand rugby team. And the little phrase that I drew our attention to was, the captain always sweeps out the sheds. It's what we've just been singing of earlier, the servant king. And Saul comes from very humble beginnings. Well, think through, not just of Saul, God's king, but the great king to come, Jesus Christ. Did he not come from very humble beginnings? Born in a feeding trough. The God of the universe. The son of a carpenter. There aren't many more things that would equate to a humble beginning. Notice another little thing. Chapter 9, verse 16. Notice how Saul was appointed by God, anointed. He was confirmed. This is going to be my king. Israel had asked for a king, but God says, no, I am going to give you a king. And to mark out who, God says to Samuel, I want you to anoint this man, Saul. He, verse 16 of chapter 9, will deliver my people. Well, that's God's king, Saul. Think through to the great king, Jesus. How did God affirm that king? Was it not at Jesus' baptism when he comes up out of the water and a voice comes from heaven? You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Then you read uh, nine chapters later on in Mark's gospel, the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, a voice comes from heaven speaking to Jesus again. This time, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So when God appoints his king, he always affirms his king. And notice this last little parable, uh, parallel. Notice how Saul, as God's king, was prepared for the task. God never calls us to serve him without preparing us for the role in which he calls us to serve him. And if you notice in chapter 10, I want you to look at verses 6 to 9. Notice how when God calls Saul, he first empowers him by the spirit of God. And as you read on in the story, Israel wins this great victory over the Ammonites, but it's not because they had a king that they win. How do they win? It's because the king had the spirit of God. That is the difference. God's people had made the mistake and spoken of it in chapters 8 and 9. If we have a king, he will deliver us. They've forgotten it's actually the Lord through their king who would deliver them. So God calls his king by anointing him. Uh, with the spirit 
Notice what that does, verse 7. There's a little progression here. After anointing him, empowering with the Spirit, it transforms Saul. Do you notice the little phrase that's given to describe how Saul is transformed? He's turned into a different person. Not physically different, but different on the inside because God's Spirit has been at work in him. And notice what goes on. When God begins to transform a person from the inside... Then God gets to work shaping that person by the word of God. Do you see that in verse 8? And when God's word is shaping and molding our characters, that is when God begins then to transform our hearts, verse 9. The really amazing thing you see in this story is that as God calls his king Saul, he prepares him for the task. And you look forward to the great king who God is preparing. How does he prepare him for the task? Well, right at the beginning of his ministry, did he not get led into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, tempted by Satan? But it was the spirit who led him into the devil, uh, into the desert. And it was the anointing of God's spirit upon his son. And the word of God that lay at the very heart of his son, that his son was prepared for his ministry, proving right at this very early stage that he had power over Satan. Humble roots, anointed and prepared for the task. And so you go again all the way back to Genesis to this promise, the king who's going to come. Saul is a partial fulfillment of that promise, but he's not the perfect answer. It's all pointing forward to the great king to come. The one who would indeed crush the head of Satan. So finally... We've seen the unbelief of God's people. We've seen how God meets our unbelief with incredible grace. We've seen that God shows his grace by preparing a king for his people. But he also shows his grace by bringing victory through his king. Just go with me to chapter 10, the last verse, 27. After this, after Saul has been is about to be made king. Notice how there are these troublemakers who in verse 27, how in the world could this fella save us? It's a really interesting question because then you look into chapter 11 and the whole chapter is all about salvation. You get repeated phrase, um, salvation or rescue or deliver. If you look down in chapter 11, it will come in verse 3, verse 6 and verse 13. It's a chapter all about deliverance. Well, how does God's king Saul bring deliverance? As you look down at chapter 11, verses 5 to 9, just notice a few things. Notice how God's king has incredible concern for his people. He's been out in the fields and he comes to them, verse 5, and says, why are you weeping? Notice, too, the zeal that he has for the honor of God. In chapter 11, verse 6, Saul hears the kind of taunting that the Ammonite leader is having over God's people. And it says, verse 6, when Saul heard their words, the spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with anger. Here's a man who at this time in his life is zealous for God. Notice how Saul, God's prepared king, had great authority and power. Verse 8, he musters this great army through whom God is going to work to win the victory. 
And notice how the king has complete and utter confidence in God, verse 9. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, that's the people of God, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. Four little things that you see about God's king who brings victory. But again, there's Saul, a king who partially fulfills that promise. Look forward to the great king who was going to come. Did he not have great concern for his people? What were the words that he cried out on the cross? when they were beating and mocking him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Did not God's great king have incredible zeal for the honor of God's name? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when every bit of Jesus wanted to turn the other way, he was in so much pain in his spirit that he was sweating drops of blood. What were those incredible words that he prayed? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Did not God's great king show great authority and power? He cried on the cross, the last words, it is finished. But three days again, he rose again. And as the angels meet the people who've gone to the tomb, they declare with great joy, he's not here. He's risen. He's gone ahead of you. Just as he said he would. And just as Saul, the king, had total confidence in God. Did not the great king show exactly the same confidence? The last words he cried on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So I hope we're seeing that God had a plan to use Saul to rescue his people. But that is just a little picture of God's bigger plan to bring his great king Jesus into the world. To rescue the world. And I hope you're seeing that all the little parallels and crossovers and coincidences are there for a reason. I'm not trying to be clever by mapping Saul onto Jesus. Oh, look at those interesting things. That's what the writer is trying to do. He's trying to say, here is a rescuer, here is a king, but he's not perfect. He'll rescue them here, but it won't be once and for all. But the great king who will come will rescue God's people once and for all. So as I close, I want to encourage each of us that God has appointed his king to come into the world and rescue his people. So will you look down with me at the last verse, chapter 11. And it says in verse 13, This day the Lord has rescued Israel. And my hope and prayer for each of us tonight is that this day we would have complete and utter confidence that God has rescued us. And if we haven't yet put our trust in him, have every confidence that he wants to rescue us. We're going to close our service by singing a few songs together, which Rob and the team will lead us through shortly. But before he comes up, they want to come up and get ready for the... It would be nice to just take a moment of quiet in our own hearts to reflect. And I'd just love you to look at those three questions and to quietly reflect in your own heart. Maybe it's a chance for you to say sorry for your unbelief. A, a chance for us to thank God for the incredible grace that he has shown us. And a chance to ask God to help us today to trust him. And the incredible victory he's won for us on the cross.